You know, last week, Deacon Jeff Little preached all the homilies for me. The week before that, I was on vacation, and the week before that, we had the Archbishop's recording. So, if I'm a little rusty, just bear with me, all right? But luckily, the kind of the first one back gets to be on a great saint's feast day, one who I always appreciate, and we'd celebrate his feast day if it wasn't a Sunday. On this day in 1978, Pope St. John Paul II was inaugurated as the Pope for the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, what an incredible witness he was to, to God's love, to the power of the gospel, one that, you know, when we had the kind of the saint dis- discernment, he was the one that I actually dressed, dressed up as. And so, of course, John Paul II is a great man. When I was a child, he was, he was the Pope. May, maybe many of you remember his time as the Pope. And even the years before he was elected the Pope in 1978, he lived in Poland. He lived, in, he was the Archbishop of Krakow, a priest of Krakow, Poland before that. And so the course of his life, though, was the, the course of a lot of Polish people's life at the time. When he was born, in, well, at least when he was a child in 39, of course, at 19 years old, the, the Nazis came in and overran Poland. And once they left, then the communists came in from, from the other side of Poland. And so a lot of his life as a priest, a lot of his time, even as the archbishop in Poland, was a time of struggle. It was a time of great struggle for the people as they're trying to, to live a life under a communist regime. And as the archbishop, he was an incredible kind of vocal critic. But maybe critic isn't the right way to put it. He was a great promoter of all things that are good. He was a great witness to life. And then, of course, this only increased when he was elected as the pope. And his own kind of witness to the goodness of life, even on his trips to Poland, even in every every certain kind of interactions he had, was so pivotal in the downfall of the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan said that the, the Soviet Union would not have collapsed, or not as quickly, without John Paul II. And how he did this was not by calling people to arms. It was not, you know, in the Korean conflict, arming South Korea or anything like that. His role was to form consciences to basically bring up the moral issues that were, that the communists were plaguing Eastern Europe. And so he talks about the goodness of the human person, about the freedom that the Lord has created each and every one of us for. And so he gives this incredible public witness to the goodness of life, to the dignity of each and every human person. And his great witness, in some ways, gives an interpretation of the gospel that we're given today. It gives us a lens of how do we view this gospel that we have. And this gospel's building to basically Jesus' own death. This is the last week of his life that they're plotting against him. They're trying to figure out how to stump him. And so the Pharisees, they go with the Herodians. So Herod is the, uh, is the governor in the area. So they get some of the Roman authorities involved. And then they begin to kind of like stroke Jesus's ego as if he really needed that. Like, teacher, we know you're a great teacher. We know that you always speak the truth. You don't concern a people's status. And so they say, is it lawful to pay this tax to Caesar or not? Of course, their goal is to try to trap him. So they they ask him this because if he says, yeah, it's okay to pay the temple tax, then basically they'll say, oh, so you're in league with the, the Roman authorities. How dare you? And if he says, no, it's not okay to pay the temple tax, well then, 
the, then basically the accusation is, well, he's no friend of Caesar. Tell on him to the authorities and get him, get him out of here. So they think they have, him, they have our Lord trapped. But of course, could never really trap Jesus. He's always so wise, so, well, he's, he's God. And so he says, show me the coin, right? Show me the coin, whose inscription is on it, whose image is on it. And he gives this very simple response. And it says he knows their malice, right? He knows the wickedness in their hearts. He says, well, repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And that, of course, raises, although it silenced the Herodians and the Pharisees, it raises more questions than it does answers for us. Because what does that mean, what belongs to Caesar, what belongs to God? And this gives us our own kind of questions in our, in our own day and age, like what, what belongs to Caesar, what belongs to the state, what belongs to the government, and what belongs to God, what belongs to the church? And how do the two interact with each other? Because at the end of the day, what belongs to God except everything? What belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, except absolutely everything in the world belongs to him. Everything belongs to the Lord. But of course, there's some sort of separation between the church and the state. You know, for example, I can't run for public office. I'm not allowed in the church. I can't run for school board or or governor or anything like that, which is a really good thing as far as I'm concerned, but probably as far as the school board's concerned, too. But... um, But that people, well, I was going to say, at one point in John Paul II's life, he ran into a priest who was in the Congress in Nicaragua, and he said, you've got to get this situation undone. You've got to leave public office. Your role is to be this witness to Jesus Christ. And so he gives this image of what it means for us. How do we interact in the world? How do we as the church interact in the public life? How do we interact with everything that goes on in our world? And John Paul II gives us this example, is to be a great witness, to be a witness to what is good, what is true, what is beautiful in our world. And the interesting way that Jesus does this is he takes this coin in the gospel and he says, whose image is on it? Whose picture do you see in that? And if we're careful readers of the Bible, it reminds us that in the book of Genesis, there's another talk about image whose image is every single person created in. And every single person is created, we learn in the book of Genesis, in the image of God. Not in the image of a coin, not in the image of a country, not in the image even of our parents. But before all else, we're in the image of God. We resemble God in some way. We look like him. We behave like him when we're at our best. And even in a particular way, parents behave like God in bringing forth life. One of the things that God does, especially in those first few chapters of Genesis, is he brings life into the world. From nothing, something exists. From the goodness of God, life comes. And of course, these thoughts about the church's interaction with our country, about the image of God that we're all created in, are very pertinent for our own day and age. They're very pertinent with what's going on even in our state. And as we reflect on this issue one that you probably know what's out there, I'm amazed, of course I haven't lived that long, but never in my life do I ever remember the church being so clear, so consistent, 
and so convicted about something going on. And no other election can I remember, and granted, I've got a, I've got a short memory, but I, I think there's something to that, that there's this great conviction that the people of God have because, our, because of what we hear in this gospel about the image of God that each and every one of us is created in and the image of God that parents reflect in the generation of life. And of course, there's so many reasons why we have to love everyone because of what God reveals, because every one of us is made in the image and likeness of God, whether it's somebody on death row whose life is still valuable, whether it's a poor and somebody in poverty or somebody who's a refugee from a war-torn place like we've got going on in the Middle East. Every single person is made in the image and likeness of God, including those in the womb. And at the end of the day, that is why the church says issue one is bad news for us, is bad news for our state, is bad news for our communities. And just to, you know, there's so many different things going out in the marketing with everything, but just to remember, a no vote means the status quo. A yes vote means that abortion gets expanded in our state. A no vote keeps the status quo. So some things out there have advertised that if we vote no, then miscarriage care will be lessened. But no, a no vote keeps the status quo. But there is one part of some of the communication that it, a couple weeks ago I was really struggling with. I was really kind of having a hard time with. And it was the whole discussion of parental rights. And so there's some, some things, if a yes vote happens, then parental rights will be lessened. Parents won't be able to kind of be able to guide their children or they won't need parental consent for certain things. And I struggled with that. I thought, I read the bill, I thought, it doesn't explicitly say that anywhere. And you know, I'm kind of a glass half full kind of guy. I'm pretty optimistic. I was like, I, I don't know if it says that anywhere. Are we going overboard in our, in our communication of saying that parental rights are going to be limited? And I took it to the Lord before God and the Blessed Sacrament. I thought, Lord, am I missing something? Or am I right? Am I wrong? Where, where in the world am I on this? Or am I just kind of confused? Or I don't know what's going on. And so as I was praying about it and thinking about it and kind of wondering about it, I remembered so many stories that I had heard parents tell about their kids who are struggling with their gender identity and the parents bemoaning the fact that they had taken them to doctors and psychologists and the doctors and psychologists overruled the parents, that they lessened the parents' role in being parents in their children's own struggles, whether it's prescribing certain hormones or prescriptions or whatever it may be. And that almost seemed to be the Lord's answer to say, it seems to be in society that we are distancing parents and their role as parents and their own children. And I don't know what that looks like legally, but that seemed to be the Lord's answer to the struggle I personally was having. And so one of the other things that the church always witnesses is the family, that the family is good and parents have an irreplaceable role in the home, in the life of their children. And that's what we have to witness as a church. That's what we get to witness. It's the great weight of responsibility that the Lord has placed on all of us, a heavy thing, a difficult thing to witness to the goodness of life, that each and every one of us, no matter if we're sitting here in the pews or if we're struggling after decisions we made years ago or even the guilt that we had after something we did minutes ago, 
We're still made in the image and likeness of God. People loved by God. People brought into existence, chosen for him. And so we witness to that, whether it's in our conversations, in the love that we show each other, or in the way that we vote, that we witness that each and every one of us is irreplaceable, is loved in the Lord's sight, and hopefully our laws, our policies, but most of all, our actions show that we believe in that great reality that we're all made in his image and in his likeness.